Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here. I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy inspires leaders to grow their companies from startup to 40 million and beyond by designing world-class strategic plans and keeping them accountable to help get it done. Go to 40strategy.com to learn more. And with that, we get to introduce our guest, Matthew Pohl, or Matt, as we'll say a lot through this conversation. He's the principal of the Rewild Group. He has spent nearly two decades as an entrepreneur and business owner and personally experienced the impact of the methodology when it helped his business value grow 10x in three years. He currently advises business owners on creating resilient organizations through leadership, infrastructure, strategy, and culture. He brings a rare level of hands-on experience and originative insight to the world of business, growth, leadership, and management. Matt, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on today. Absolutely. Well, why don't you dig in and tell us a little bit more about the Rewild Group and, and what you're doing today? Yeah, the Rewild Group has developed a business growth framework. Some would call it a business operating system that is really geared toward allowing a CEO to have a roadmap that takes it from kind of the startup stage all the way up to organization that has up to 350 employees. And given clarity on what changes during the transitions from what we've identified as seven different stages within that range. So, okay, now I'm super curious about that. For why up to 350? Why, if we're not 500, why, why 250? What, what is something magic about the 350 mark from your perspective? Well, it's it's really based on our multiple decades of research of small and mid-sized businesses. We uh, observed over 1,300 small and mid-sized businesses. And there does seem to be kind of this magic number. Actually, there's multiple magic numbers, one for each of the seven stages of growth. But once you get above 350, there's, it's not that the methodology doesn't work. It's just that the organization is typically mature enough that uh, they tend to need less guidance. And uh, in particular, our methodology is about identifying the stage of growth that a business is in and giving rules that need to be followed. And so the rules really go up to 350. So kind of a decoder ring, if you want, but the principles apply to any size of business. Got it. No, no, thank you for, for sharing. Cause I was just, I hear all different types of numbers and different stages. And I do agree. There's, there's, with different set of employees, there are different stages you see. And, and sometimes the employees, are, but there's also the stage of like how mature, right? The business is in terms of its growth. So tell us a little bit about these seven stages, you know, kind of from, a, if you could kind of really briefly talk about it, what are those seven stages and, and kind of a brief synopsis of each one? Yeah. So stage one is the startup stage, one to 10 employees. And this is, as the name implies, uh, you know, the startup stage, the beginning of an organization, although many organizations get stuck in that stage for, for decades. But probably the key thing to, to point out is the stages, our methodology and research shows that, that it's really the number of employees that drive the stage that you're in. And the reason it's the number of employees, because that's the variable that drives complexity 
within an organization. So we just found that there's a higher correlation between number of employees than say something like revenue, yeah. right? A $10 million professional services firm and a $10 million construction firm. Those are two different businesses at different stages requiring different numbers of people. So revenue, while it's not irrelevant, it's, it's important. It's not really the defining characteristic that puts a business into a stage of growth, at least from our research. So stage one, one to 10, stage two, 11 to 19, that's ramp up. Stage three is delegation, that's 20 to 34 employees. And I'll just kind of go through the rest of the names. At stage three is delegation. Stage four is the professional stage where you need to get a professional management team in place. Stage five is integration where those departments that are now fully functioning and led by professional managers are starting to be integrated into a greater whole. Stage six is, is strategic. And that's really where the big change there is that the organization should be now led by a leadership team, not just the CEO. And then stage seven is visionary. And visionary is where the CEO really is out of the day-to-day -day running of the business and is, is really playing the part of the visionary. So, and across each of these stages, we've identified rules in eight different categories that span these seven stages. While the, the rule category spans them, the actual rules within them are changing. I'll just give you a simple example. Leadership style is important. You need to provide the right kind of leadership to your organization. But there's not just one style of leadership that's optimal. In fact, it changes based on your stage of growth. So that's one way that we help a leader understand that a stage one business takes a certain style of leadership, which is quite different than a stage five business. Mm -hmm. So that's, those are the kinds of concepts that our research has discovered. So if you and mine, I'd love to fill in some of these numbers of employees. So professional stage, what's that number of employees they typically have? Uh, professional stage. Yeah, you're catching me. I want to make sure I'm getting these right because they're, yeah, then, they're yeah, specific you. numbers. They're specific numbers. So the professional stage is 35 to 57. So that's stage four. Stage five is 58 to 95. Stage six is 96 to 160. And stage seven is 161 to 350. Mm. And what's really amazing when we introduce these, these stages to people, a lot of times there's this, you know, of course, not always a immediate buy-in to, oh, you know, is it specifically here or there? But, and I would say it's not always right at that, that exact number, but it's really odd to see in real life that say, when you're getting to this 95 and you're about ready in transition between five and six, that that really is right at that stage, that number of employees where you start to see these dynamics, this uh, transition between those stages start to kick in. And it's uh, a little bit more, I would say a little bit more precise in those earlier stages, but we've, we've actually had business owners who believe in the methodology that say, Hey, I'm going to hold off growing a few more people to kind of get my business ready for that next stage and then start hiring again because they are that confident that these ranges are relevant to what stage they're in. 
I, I, I've been with companies in all of these different sizes, you know, like, sure. you know, and it's so, so interesting hearing and seeing about the different pieces and what at least came to me through this is it's, it's a frustrating thing for people. I, I you, you read and research a lot. I read and research a lot. Right. right. One of my favorites is good to great. Right. Uh, yeah. But one, and it is great because it's a research based book. Right. It's a research right. 10 years of study. I believe that got it to the full completion, right. Of the full good to great part. The, the problem though, is that somebody will take a good to great strategy theory to a company that's 14 people. Right. And, and so this is where I've, I've run into people who have expressed frustrations like, Oh, good to greats. They almost get frustrated with it. And it's like, well, it's still valid and true, but it's valid and true for these publicly traded companies that were researched, right? It's not necessarily right. fully true for organization of your size. So let's adapt and understand the principles that make sense because not everything, do you, do you have, or, you know, is it your research kind of come up with things like that? Because I think there's something to the number of employees that you've come up with for, for sure based on that research. Yeah, well, I, I think what you see is there's a lot of intellect and discoveries and brilliance in books like Good to Great. The challenge is right-sizing the discoveries to the organization and where it's at. I think that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah. And that's what's so powerful about organizational rewilding is because we've identified these different stages. It's not kind of a one-size-fits-all. In fact, at its very heart is the idea that things change as your business grows. And what this really reveals is the source of frustration by many CEOs who have experienced success and gotten to a certain level of success. And then things either stall or they even pull back to, from those heights to a lower level of size of organization. And the reason is, is because they haven't understood that the rules of growth have actually changed underneath their feet. They don't see that what worked to get them there. And this is where the statement comes, right? What worked to get you there is not going to take you to the next layer, you know, to, to keep you going. And that philosophy or that truism makes sense. And we've experienced it, but without, well, organizational rewilding really explains why and how, what things, specific things need to change. So it's not just this kind of overarching true principle, it's really a roadmap that you can really align to at, at a very specific way. I, th I think it's brilliant, I, I really do. It's, it's, it's not, you know, I get the privilege of talking with so many different organizations and people and leadership consulting groups that have different philosophies, but this is, one that's uh, once again from my my you know little bit of learnings that I am aware of this and much more clear much more precise and also hits on that really important concept that you said is that you have to change at each stage and and I think that's often missed I, you'll run into a an incredible performer at different levels and they'll come a, a, not an uncommon thing is somebody will come from a larger company to a smaller company. And the concept is that this hero at the larger company is gonna all of a sudden turn that smaller company to that. Right. But they have never worked at a 125 person company. 
right? Right. Where where they were, their paperclip spend was more than the entire expenses and <laughs> revenues, right? You know, <laughs> right, you, right. You know, that exactly. they had, and and so there's this sometimes what I call a mistake or or you know, a lack of understanding on both sides, right? They think all of a sudden they're going to accelerate them all the way through the part. While in the inverse, they thought they could come in and bring in their Fortune 500 company experience to Smallco and it it absolutely fails sometimes. Yeah, no, we we see that regularly and it's it's not universal, obviously, but if if there's not a recognition that going from big co to small co is is a, a significant change, then you're right. You're you're left fr- frustrated on both sides. That you know, big co, you know, executive had all this support structure, all these things that had were already figured out for the organization. All these elements, as we would call them, many of them are already in the organization just by the nature of the largeness required them to be there. And in a small organization, first of all. They may not need all that structure because they're not big enough. And that's one of the big things I see is big co-executive comes in and says, oh, we got to do all these things. Well, the the reality is, no, you don't and you shouldn't because you're not at a stage where that kind of structure is even going to add value. It's going to weigh on the organization instead of being creating a more resilient organization. So it's that acknowledgement that what got them there doesn't necessarily work back here either. It's the same concept. What just flashed in my head when you said that was, once again, brilliant executive comes in, comes to a company, small company. We need to put an SAP. <laughs> right. Thank you yep. for laughing. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And SAP, yep. by the way, is a fantastic product. Sure. But in the right situations. And most companies don't have 18 months to wait or to up to three years for full implementation, they need it now. Right. Right. It's just, all I was just trying to break up there is this once, once again, the situation of, oh, we need to change our ERP, but not for a 75 person company, you don't necessarily need to, right? You might need to change right. from your right. basic, you know, free software that you have, you know, day one. Right. But but where do you change to where you go? Those, those system, people process systems are, are so different in each stage. Now, after the stage one, Where's the hardest next stage to grow from? Yeah, that's that's a great question. If you look at the entire U.S. market, you'll see that, you know, there's kind of a Poisson distribution, very heavy stage one, stage two, and then it dramatically drops off, you know, as you get out to stage seven. It's just harder to be in a larger organization. You have to have a market that supports it. You have to have a product that there's enough demand for, and you have to have a leader that can actually grow the organization. So it's hard, gets harder and harder, but stage one, a lot of businesses never get out of stage one. That's disappointing because there's a lot of hardworking, bright entrepreneurs that have good products that if they really understood how to grow, they likely could grow further. And what often happens is coming out of stage one, going to stage two, you hit your first transition zone there. And it, it kind of feels like the wheels are falling off. And a lot of entrepreneurs, they, they get into stage two, they don't know that the rules are changed and they fall back into stage one. And they say, oops, that was not worth it. I'm going to just stay here. And it's this kind of resolution that this is as good as it gets. And that's really, it's unfortunate. It doesn't have to be that way. If they had a guidebook that would say, okay, 
Stage two is different. Here's how it's different. Many of them could successfully get into stage two and grow further. But the next stage that's hard is really stage three. And it's for the owner, especially the, the founder, stage three, we say is the most challenging stage. And the reason is, is because you're moving into delegation. That's the name of the stage. And what's happening here is what we call the, the transition from owner-centric to be an enterprise-centric. Stage one and stage two, the really the dominant modality is, is possessed by the owner-CEO. They're really the driving force of the organization. In stage three, there's this transition. And if the, if the CEO doesn't start to delegate and make it less about the CEO and turn it more into this enterprise-centric organization where the, the company's really at the heart of it instead of the individual. You usually see an organization either stop growing there, often falling back into stage two, or if they're really hard charged and very capable, they can sometimes get to stage four, but it's rare that there's much success after that. And we can just look at it over and over again. You can see this in the data that stage three is this, this kind of this point where the, the CEO has to kind of step back. Not that it's not still their organization, but they've got to get greater buy-in from the entire team. And that requires it to be more enterprise-centric. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's... Uh... A really great insight and and but what i also loved as you said it doesn't have to be that way right you know there, there's choices that are made and unfortunately it, some of this is due to lack of understanding the the strategy and tactics right that have to be put in in each place which would ideally significantly increase the likelihood of it happening although as you said you know there are other factors you know sometimes it's your geography sometimes it's your product you know how much of scale you do you really have to get beyond it but assuming those things are scalable right, right, there, right. There, there is a lot more you know opportunity that's beyond it so now i'd like to take it back because you, you didn't get here by accident you know you had really interesting your own personal career where you you were down in that one to 10 employee stage, right? For, for quite a long right. period of time. And you figured it out through some, some, so first of all, you could kind of share that story and how it came about to develop yourself and, and under having these concepts understood more, more well, much more better. Yeah. Yeah. So about 20 years ago, my business partner and I, we started our first business. I was spent my early career at Federal Reserve Bank, Arthur Anderson, a large office products company, and just felt that, you know, I, I wanted to do my own thing, right? To control my own destiny, to be able to have the market determine what value I brought to the table, if I did, right? So, you know, with the four small children, we launched into our first business, and my business partner is also my wife. And started down that path of entrepreneurial endeavor. And we had been in that business for about 12 years. So about 12 years in, we had gone through some highs and lows, but kind of in a, a range of revenue that we couldn't kind of get above, a range of employees that we just couldn't get above. We would go up to 10, 12, 15, then back to eight, you know, up to 10 and 12 and back down to six. And we, we couldn't figure it out. I thought I was pretty smart, but I had tapped into all of my knowledge, tapped into my experience. And uh, sitting at year 12, 
we had once again, I know this now, we had once again had fallen back into stage one. And it was at that time we had a business broker come and value our business. And when we looked at the number and the 12 years of, of hard work, we said, whoa, this, this is not what we are expecting. And, but to be fair, you know, we really weren't building a business to sell. We enjoyed the work, although to be honest, at 12 years into it, it was getting a little bit stale, wasn't enjoying it as much, especially when we had hit the ceiling that we could not figure out. And it was at that point in time where I stumbled on at the, a book was given actually to, to me by another CEO. And he said, Hey, this is got to read this book. This is the best growth system I've seen. I said, okay, well, let me take a look at that. Read the book, was able to pull some interesting things out of that and thought, okay, I, I can see some of this. And it turned out that the author of the book was in my backyard here in Colorado. And I reached out to him and ended up joining a, a CEO group that he was hosting for about a year, just to really dig more into, get more insight than what the book could provide me. And I, I tend to be a person that can take a concept and run with it. You know, I can connect the dots pretty quickly. And so after that, or even during that year, obviously we were working on the business because our, my business partner and I said, hey, you know, we can just keep on doing this things the same way, do another decade, decade or so, and at some point maybe turn out the lights, say goodbye. And, you know, that was a good run. We're making enough money to pay for our living and, you know, saving for college for our kids, but we weren't really adding transferable value to the organization. And so we said, hey, let's, let's change that mindset. Let's really build something that would have value. And so we thought it would take five to 10 years to, to achieve a higher degree of, of value in the organization. So that was year 12. We started on this plan. And in three years, we had seen dramatic change. We had tripled our number of employees and revenue. So we had gotten out of stage one, we were now into stage three. And we, we were building this enterprise-centric organization. That was one of the insights. It was owner-centric. We knew it had to become enterprise-centric. We had gone through startup ramp-up, and we were in delegation. We were building a management team. So all this gave us very clear direction on what we should be doing. And one of the biggest benefits of that is when we were in state, we had moved from stage one to stage two. We we're looking ahead to getting into stage three. And it predicted, the methodology predicted what was going to come next. So instead of floundering into a dark room and stumbling around in stage three for years, we actually prepared proactively for stage three. We got some elements in place that we needed in stage three. So we kind of worked ahead in the workbook, if you would. And it just made the transition. During those three years, we didn't have any hiccups, you know, really major setbacks in our growth. It was just nice, steady growth year after year. We're sitting at year 15 and um, a major competitor comes and, and gives a great valuation and offer. And, you know, we said, well, we could work another five to 10 years. We don't know if we're ever going to get higher than this figure. Maybe, maybe not though. And so we went ahead and, and accepted the offer and, and sold the business. And what was really interesting, we didn't plan it this way, but what we had was this year 12 valuation. And then we had what we sold the business for. And 
during those three years, like I already said, we had tripled employees, tripled in revenue. Actually, our margins improved dramatically as well. We were always a profitable organization, but we were making a really good margins on this business. And in year 15, we sold the business for 10 times what we had in year 12. Wow. And so as coming out of that, you know, we said, you know, the plan is definitely aligned. There was a lot of factors that contributed to it. But for a professional services business, we got a 10x multiple on our EBITDA. You know, we were doing a lot of great things. And um, coming out of that, the, uh, the inventor of the methodology who had seen us go through this, this growth spurt and saw us successfully exit the business, asked if I would help him try to monetize the methodology. And so we, we, I ended up acquiring the methodology, starting Rewild Group, and basically have had a team take kind of his nuggets of brilliance and turn this into an actual operating system or business growth methodology that's now replicable. And so that's where we are, we're at today. We are now certifying business consultants around the globe. We're on six continents now with advisors who are using this methodology to impact small and mid-sized businesses. So that's, that's kind of the background story. So this isn't just a Hey, I thought it up, you know, at a moment of brilliance. I didn't think up the, the base methodology, uh, but my team and I have made it very practical because I knew it had to be practical because I've run my own business. And so we took, like I said, the theory and made it so it's it's really accessible really by any 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 business owner from stage one to seven can grasp this, can can implement this. Oh, that's, I think it's a fantastic. And what was the, forget, what was the name of the original book that the original author? Yeah, it's Navigating the Growth Curve. Navigating the Growth Curve. It's available on Amazon. And James Fisher was the author of the book. And, and what you though have done is you've written now multiple books and the different stages, right? To help people get a better understanding of that. Is that part of what you've done to help train and, and get people to understand it better? Yeah, what we realized is that to make this really accessible, we had to give CEOs kind of multiple ways that they could interact with the, the methodology. And we found that books and kind of online resources allowed somebody to, to do it themselves. So it's kind of self-guided. Then we have kind of a second layer, which is more of a coaching. So a coaching supported approach where you're working through you know, a structured program, and that's really focused on what we call the owner-centric businesses. Stage one through three is really a good candidate for coaching. And then we have advisor-led, which is really more of a deep dive. It can be applied to any stage, but it becomes a little bit more economically feasible stage two on up. So we've released a series of books for each of the seven stages. And it's a, a one-hour guidebook. You can read it in an hour and you can start to apply it tomorrow. And what's great about the methodology is you don't have, it's not like this complex, it's a very comprehensive system, but you can take just one principle and apply that to your business and get an alignment to that set of rules in your current stage. And you'll see value in that. Then you can say, okay, let me tackle a second area of rules and let's get in better alignment there and you'll start to see value. So every component has a lift. And the analogy we use is that, you know, it's like hiking up a mountain 
when you're ready to hike up the mountain, you don't throw a bunch of bricks in your backpack, right? You, you want to go with just what you need. And, and when you're misaligned with these rules, it's like filling your backpack with bricks. And it doesn't mean you can't get to the top, but oftentimes at some point, it just becomes too hard to make it feel worthwhile keeping on going. And so by aligning to these best practices, what we call rules of growth, you're essentially taking out the bricks out of your backpack and making it easier to grow. You're, you're aligned with the rules that allow you to continue to sustain growth. I think that's great. Thank you so much. And I love that analogy of, of the bricks, so to speak, you know, of, of carrying it forward. And, and once again, bring what, what being lean, if you may, you know, on the absolute right, right. things, not overwhelming. I think that's one of, again, the greatest challenge of reading another book. I think one of the worst things we all do as business leaders is we'll read a book, won't go into much depth and then say, let's apply this theory. Right. Right. And, and it's, and it's, once again, there could be, there could be a, an element, there can be a couple pieces behind it, but part of the big challenge we're talking about today is it might be the wrong match at the wrong time. That's right. Yeah. And, and that is a key point is again, these can be brilliant principles, but they may be brilliant for a stage seven business, but they're not all that helpful and can actually be harmful in a stage two business. And a simple example is an example of a misalignment would be in an area of rules called gates of focus. In, in stage one and stage two, the primary gates of focus is profit. You need to focus, that's where growth is gonna come by focusing on profit. But you may have a CEO who naturally is a process-oriented CEO. Who's, who wants to build the great mousetrap and get the, the, all the processes, put the ERP system in for a stage one business, right? And that is not the right focus. So if you're misaligned, you may be able to grow, but you're making growth harder. And really the point I was trying to make is that you may, you may read a book that says you need process. Process is so important. And the answer is yes, process is important. But I can promise you process at stage one is less important than profit. Process at stage four is in fact the highest priority of gates of focus in stage four. So it's the right answer, but it could be the wrong timing. And that's really important because most books you read, you know, somebody has gone really in depth in a particular topic. And again, there's great ideas there but it just may not be the right topic, the right focus for your organization where it's at today. Yeah, 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 I think that's fantastic. And once again, I just love love the information you're providing. So let's talk about your business now and, and how you're measuring success with it today. You know, how, how are you measuring success at the Rewild Group? Yeah, I would say there's two. There's quantitative and qualitative, right? So one of our elements is key performance indicators. Businesses really from stage one, but by stage two, you need key performance indicators. And, you know, you can select good ones and bad ones. So knowing what a key performance indicator is and how it changes behavior in the organization is important. So we have key performance indicators that we say, if we're doing well on these, we're moving towards success. So that's one, that's a key way from a quantitative way that we measure success. The second though is quantitative, qualitative, and that's just through the stories we hear from 
our network advisors who are working from biz- with business owners and just hearing the impact, you know, just, it was about four weeks ago, one of our advisors was working with a, where a company has some really cool solutions and, but, but struggling, hitting, they're, they're misaligned to the rules of growth. And one of our coaches is helping them out. And at the end of a, one of the meetings, the CEO just kind of pulled the coach aside and said, Hey, you know, I want you to understand that you're just not helping our business. You're saving our company. Mm. And, and it's like, wow, you know, that's cool. That's, that's important because small and mid-sized businesses play such a vital role to our dynamic economy. And if we can have businesses be more successful, less, less failure in that we help our overall macro economy, as well as helping those individual lives, that CEO's life is being changed. Um, Another just anecdote, I've been working with an IT support company here. This, the CEO left a large organization, started his own business. So he's a stage one business. And uh, we've been going through the coaching program. And in particular, one thing that he really caught on is the brand and core values element that has really helped him differentiate himself in the marketplace. And I just heard that last week that he is moving into his first office with his business. So it's, it's not changing the world, but for that CEO, it's changing his world. Right. And those are the stories that we look to, to, sh- to know that we're being successful. So now I don't want any details as to what the number is, but I'm kind of curious, what, is there a couple particular metrics that you're tracking? And, and the secondary question, are they more leading or lagging type indicators that you're tracking? Yeah, I'm glad you bring up those concepts because those are part of how you you choose good KPIs. So we, we have a mixture of, of leading and lagging KPIs. And uh, an example would be, excuse me, an example would be um, w- website activity would be a leading one. That's, and in particular, we track form submitted. So we have a lot of content on our website that's free content, free access. And we kind of have a give to get, you give us a little bit of information to get access to more and more deeper content. So a key driver for us is driving visits to the website that result in form submissions where somebody is accessing a piece of our content. That's a, a key leading indicator for us. You know, we have traditional lag, lagging indicators like revenue, and we have three different revenue groups, you know, revenue we're generating with our own activity, revenue that's being generated by our network and revenue that's being generated by online resources. And each of those have different operational structures behind them. So, you know, we're looking at revenue in those three revenue group categories mm-hmm. and we have goals for, you know, obviously moving as much of the revenue into the network and the online resources, because those are more scalable aspects of our business. So those are maybe a couple examples. Yeah, that's I'm perfect. Not sure if that, yeah. Okay. yeah, it was great. Yeah. I was just, once again, just want to dig into that a little bit more. So you, because of your going to the personal side now, you know, you've had a very interesting part where your wife has been a big part of this whole process, right? You know, she's right, been a part right. of, of being part of your business and growing it and developing toward that. And that's not an easy thing, right? For, for many to be able to pull that it's off. Not. So first of all, congratulations <laughs> on being able to pull that yeah. off. But, yeah. but let's talk a little, just, you know, as, as we have a few more minutes from, from a personal perspective, what are the 
things that you do on a regular, consistent basis? What type of habits that you do? So you're, you know, you've had a lot of success through your career and ups and downs too. You were, you were saying, you know, it wasn't all up, you know, it wasn't all rocket ship, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. But, but what have you done over the years that you learned? If I do these habits consistently, I have the greatest, this will allow me to give the greatest, right, if you may, out there to the world and to my family, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I would say one rule that I've lived by is eating dinner with my family every night. And that's, it may seem kind of simple, but in the busyness of life, it's easy to overlook. And, you know, this was before I had a business, you know, before I was an entrepreneur, you know, it, it has always been an important thing with, you know, a wife that at that time was staying home and raising our four children for her sanity that I was home helping make the meal, making sure the kids ate and clean it up after them. So it's, it, that's, I would say, is, has been a, an important touch point. And even now that our kids are grown and we've got grandkids now, it's Dawn and I having dinner together almost every night. It's, it's maybe once a month, once a quarter that we're not having dinner together. It's, it's just a touch point where we are participating in an important activity of life. It allows us to decompress a bit, think about the day, and also talk about other things. I would say that plus walks. Don and I walk regularly. We've got kind of a 5K track around our neighborhood. And I would say, you know, that even goes back again before being an entrepreneur, having small kids, getting them out, getting some energy out. And, um, you know, it allowed us to talk. And you know, I think those two, I think, contributes to the fact that we've been married for 34 years and we still enjoy each other. We still care for each other. And uh, so that's, you know, maybe that you know, obviously exercise, eating right, staying healthy are, are important, too. But I would say those are two things that contribute to all of that eating together and, and going for walks. You're not one. I first of all, I, I appreciate it, and I love sometimes like what I'd call what it where sometimes the most meaningful. Like that's a leading indicator to you, right? If I am having yeah. with my family, it's it's going to have a significant impact on all these other pieces, right? That I'm doing, and right. for you to have that high of a connect time with dinner and, and with your family is extraordinary because that's I think most people can't even relate to that. But right. you made that a clear priority for you, and and you've fortunately been able to have the, you know, the results, right. And that you have a, a happy marriage, what you described is <laughs> something that right, you're still right. wanting to be with every day. You've got, you got grandkids, you got children and grandkids now that you're part of their lives. And that seems like a, quite a reward that you've been able to have for that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's no perfect marriage. They're just <laughs> ones that continue to be successful. Right. And, you know, I, Working with a spouse, I'll tell you, early years, it was, it was hard. It was very difficult. And Don and I are, are quite opposite in our personalities. And that's been both a strain, a strength of ours, really. It's been a key strength. And part of our success is being able to look at the same thing in two totally mindsets. But yet that difference also creates points of conflict and being able to work through those is, is not easy. But it's just a matter of, like you said, a prioritization of also saying dedication and making sure you're doing the right thing so that those those other things don't throw you off course. Right. So what is a book that you'd recommend for our audience? 
Well, obviously navigating the growth curve was one of those that helped me a lot, but I'll, I'll tell you, it, it's framed in a novel. And so it's, it's not like a typical business book. So in some ways that's good, but in other ways it's hard to go and do something with it. One book that really helped me during those, that between year 12 and 15 was Built to Sell. Mm. And that, that book really helped me understand this idea of creating transferable value and how you do that in a service, professional services business. It just gave me new language and idea. So I would say from another author, that's, that's been one of the most impactful books that, that I read at that point in time. And I think would be valuable for any business owner to read because you really need to have that end in mind. Like, you know, the seven habits of effective people talking about have, have, have the end in mind. And even if you're not going to sell your business today, tomorrow, next year, knowing that you, having an exit at some point is something that you should be planning for does change your mindset, and how you approach your business. So that's, that was a book that was very impactful to me. We've released a new book. This may seem a little bit self-serving. I, and I don't mean to do this, but we released a, a book on brand and core values that has only been out a couple months, but we're hearing great things about it. It takes a different spin on this idea of core values or company values. And it really shows that you need both a promise to the market and your brand values and a promise to the team in your core values. And most organizations try to kind of combine those two into one set of values, and it's just not as effective. And we're finding that one to be very impactful. And I'm sorry, what's the the title of that book? It's called Brand and Core Values. Perfect, that's it, okay. Yeah. Well, I I actually, somebody else I worked with actually had that understood. I'm I'm actually really curious to read that one because of there is a, a, uh, a misalignment often core is usually about internal brands about the outside right right and, and, and people confuse them often and and it confuses your customers and it confuses your employees as a result right that's right that's right so you you can have maybe a fun place to work for your employees but fun may not be what your your customers want right. uh, they want responsiveness and and you kind of get some really confusing values that don't seem to really support each other when you try to put it into one basket Yep. Yep. I think that's fantastic. Where can people learn more about you and the Rewild Group? Yeah. So the best place is rewildgroup.com. And that's just re, R-E, the word wild, wildgroup.com. And uh, we have a lot of resources there. I'm on LinkedIn, obviously. So you're welcome to reach out if you want to touch base with me individually. And so those are two good ways. And then on Amazon, we have all our books, both in print and Kindle versions. So my team put together this nice author page. So it looks real professional. And so you can get our books there. It's very convenient. Perfect. Matt, it has been a pleasure to have you on the Measure Success podcast. Thank you so much for being on. Carl, I really appreciate the time to talk to you and and hope we've added value to your audience. I definitely believe you have. I really, really enjoyed this. I know our audience will. And to all of our guests and audiences listening, we're wishing you the very best at measuring your success. And we hope you have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes. Say-
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.